Turn, if you would, in the Word of God to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. You'll find that on page 1,100 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Luke 8, beginning at verse 22, and I'll read the familiar story of Jesus calming the storm, 22 to 25. This is the Word of God to be given the same reverence as God Himself. One day, Jesus got into a boat with His disciples, and He said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, He fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and waters? and they obey him. That's the reading of God's Word. May he add his blessing to it. You'll have noticed as we read through this short passage of God's Word that there are two questions posed. The first question is posed by our Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples where he says, where is your faith? The second question is posed by the disciples to themselves when they say, who then is this that he commands even winds and waters and they obey him? The first question, of course, has to do with us, with the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second question has to do with Jesus Christ, who he is and all of his magnificence and glory. And upon these two questions and the answer we give to these questions, our happiness as Christians hangs. It matters to us who this Lord Jesus Christ is. It's actually one of the most important questions in all the world. Who is this Christ? And it is also important for us to know whether we have faith. Where is our faith? And so after giving the setting of this passage this morning, I want to answer those two questions. Who then is this, and where is your faith? First then, the setting. The disciples were on the one side of the lake, and our Lord Jesus invited them to go across to the other side of the lake. And as they set out, one of the things happened that often happens on the sea there in Israel, and that is a violent storm came up. The cold air coming down from the mountains would meet with the warm air from the sea, and there would be this tempest. And this storm and this trouble was quite severe for these sailors. Remember that some of them were fishermen. They were veterans, old salts, we might say. 
And yet we find them quite frightened, calling out to Jesus, Master, Master, we are perishing, as you might do yourself if you were on the water and your boat was filling with water and you were unable to scoop it out fast enough. But the situation that the disciples find themselves in, the trouble they experience, is really a picture of what all Christians experience, that we all face difficulties and hardships in life, just like these disciples did. We all face situations that overwhelm us, that frighten us, that make us fear for ourselves and for the future. I'm sure that if I were to ask each one of you this morning what your trouble is, that you could give me some answer. Perhaps it's difficulty working with other people, relationships difficulties. Perhaps you have concerns about your health that frightened you. You're awaiting, perhaps, say, a report from the doctor from the last test that you've received. Maybe it's financial challenges so that you find it difficult to pay your bills every month. But each one of us has some difficulty. Maybe it's just an overwhelming sense of sin or a lack of progress in the Christian life that has you discombobulated and discouraged. It is the lot of Jesus' disciples that they face trials of many kinds. And being with Jesus didn't isolate the disciples from the storm. It is something that we ought not to be surprised about. That's what Peter says, perhaps reflecting on this particular situation in his letter in 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 13. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that you're experiencing, as if something strange were happening to you. And perhaps he also remembered what our Lord Jesus said to his disciples in John's gospel. In this world, you will have tribulations. That's our lot in life. Difficulties, troubles, hardships, disappointments, burdens that weigh us down, that keep us up, that wake us up in the night, and that are with us in the morning. Each one of us, I'm sure, can relate to that, either because we see it in our own lives and experience the harsh reality of it, or we observe it in the lives of those who are near and dear to us, and it weighs us down. And the thing that we need to understand, there's two things, actually, that we need to understand about our troubles. The first is that they are all sovereignly orchestrated by our God. Notice here that it was Jesus who led his disciples into the storm. And that's exactly what we need to know about God, that storms and troubles and difficulties that come upon us in our life, they're no surprise to the Lord. It's, it's not like he leads us one way and then troubles come and he said, if only I had known that I would have gone some other way for my people or led them by some other way. No, the Lord knows precisely what awaits us. And he leads us by the hand into those storms and difficulties, into the loss, into the, the fears, into the sickness. It is all sovereignly orchestrated by our God. But, and this needs to be said as well, lest you think he is a tyrant 
who arbitrarily brings pain upon you. He does it for our good in order that we might know him better. And you can see this in this very story that we read. The, The disciples thought they knew Jesus, but it was in the storms, in the tempests, that they really came to know him because it was there that he revealed to them his glory and majesty, his kind compassion towards them. And that's why God brings difficulties. It's not because he's malevolent or malicious or unkind or helpless, but he's doing it so that you might know him better and love him more and rely increasingly upon his grace and be comforted in all the difficulties and trials of life that come upon us because we live in a world under the curse of sin. This past Monday at our council meeting, Elder Gene Schalk read a meditation from C.H. Spurgeon, and there was a line that jumped out at me as he was reading it that is so appropriate uh, to this. O tempest-tossed believer, it is a happy trouble that brings you to your Father. Do you see Do you see how Spurgeon understands it? It's not just a trouble that brings you to your father, but precisely because it brings you to your father, it's a happy trouble. So that whatever our situations in life, we're to rejoice in them, knowing that God means good for us. He does it for our blessing and for our happiness. Now, I understand that that's hard for some of you to hear. And truth be told, it's sometimes hard for me to say when I think of the troubles that God has led some of you through, I wonder as well how in the world that can be a good thing. But it is what the Word of God tells us. And let God be true and everyone else a liar. He brings us into troubles so that we might know him better. And that's for our happiness and joy. And that's precisely what we see in this story. Because as the disciples are in the midst of this storm, they learn something about the Lord Jesus that they didn't know before. And it prompts the question, who then is this? That he commands even winds and waters and they obey him. And that's the question that I want to answer this. Who then is this? Who is this Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing I want to say from this passage is that he is man. You can easily skip over this, but it's there, obviously. Because notice what it says in verse 23, that as they set out and as they sailed... Jesus fell asleep. Now, that's a remarkable thing. It shows the real humanity of our Lord Jesus, that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who dwelt with the Father and the Spirit in eternal happiness 
far before the creation of the world, that this second person of the Trinity came into this world and he took to himself a real humanity. So that here, Jesus fell asleep. And you can tell how absolutely exhausted he is because the storm doesn't awaken him. He is so tired, so weary from perhaps from engaging with people or because of the walk that he's done or the teaching that he had to teach. But it overwhelmed him with weariness so that he falls asleep. Jesus shares our humanity. He has DNA like we have DNA. He was born as we were born, passing through his mother's birth canal. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, taking chromosomes from his mother, looking like his mother, looking like his brothers, a real person living in a real place at a real point in human history. Jesus is fully man. Now, that's important theologically. It was humans that had sinned. And the only way that sinners could be free from their condemnation is if another human took their place. All the all the sacrifices of the animals, they could never really take away sin. It had to be man, someone exactly like us, except that he was without sin. And so it's so important for us to know that, that Jesus took a real humanity, that he became exactly like us, except that he was without sin. That's important theologically, but it's important pastorally as well. You know how sometimes you can be in a situation and feel so absolutely alone because you think no one else has under, ex, experienced this. No one understands what I'm going through. Well, the Lord Jesus does understand what you are going through because he was made like us and he can sympathize with the feelings of our infirmities because he was tempted in all points just as we are. So this is a a remarkable thing to think about, that in heaven at the right hand of the Father, we have someone who understands. He understands what it is to lose loved ones. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed, to be maligned, to be forsaken, to feel all alone. He knows what pain is like and hardships and disappointments and opposition. He knows because Jesus is fully man. But there's another thing that I want to point out, and that is that Jesus is fully God. Now, it's clear from the New Testament that Jesus' miracles were all done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not that Jesus, you know, dipped into his divinity in order to help him in his humanity. No, he was anointed with the Spirit of God and carried out the totality of his ministry in the power of the Spirit, according to his human nature. So that this miracle that he did, he did by the power of the Spirit when he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased and there was calm. But it was precisely in that miracle that we catch a glimpse of the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was truly man, but he was also truly God. Just think about what the Psalms say. Psalm 106, for instance, talks about how God in the Exodus 
rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry, just like Jesus here rebukes the sea and it became calm. And then we sang from Psalm 107 as our opening psalm this morning. And Psalm 107 talks about the power of God over the waters. You can see that there in Psalm 107, verse 29. God made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. So that Jesus is very God of very God. He isn't just a man, but he is the great God-man. And again, this is, this is so important theologically because a mere man could, could never experience the judgment of God and pay for the sins of the whole world. It was precisely because Jesus was the God-man that he was God who took upon himself human flesh and in that flesh was sacrificed as an offering for sin. It was because it was God who took on human flesh that that sacrifice has infinite value and effectiveness so that he is able to save completely to the uttermost all those who come to God through him. It is important that our Redeemer be God, so that he could sustain by his divinity, sustain his humanity to bear the punishment for sin. But it's also important pastorally, because we need God to come to our aid. A lot of good the disciples were to one another in the midst of the storm. They needed God to come down to reveal himself in majesty and glory and that's exactly what happened. Jesus came and in his majesty delivered his people so that it is God who had come to their aid. So it doesn't matter what your situation is. It might be completely overwhelming to you. You might think that there's no way of escape, that it's, uh, you're doomed But no, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or imagine because he's a great God. Nothing is too difficult for him. Who then is this? He's man. He's God. And then thirdly, he's compassionate. This comes across in a number of ways in this passage that I want to highlight to you. The first thing is that his ears are open to the cries of his disciples. This is quite a remarkable thing. Just imagine the picture. Jesus is in the boat. He's lying down asleep. The disciples are frantic, probably yelling to one another. And, and, and the boat is being tossed back and forth, and the water is cascading over the edge. And Jesus is asleep. It doesn't seem like anything could wake him up. And then his disciples woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke. The storm doesn't wake up our Lord, but the cries of his disciples do. Isn't that a wonderful encouragement? You might think that, that God's too busy, that he's too magnificent, that he doesn't care about you, or he doesn't have any time for you. Well, listen to this. The waves did not wake up our Lord Jesus Christ. The storm did not alarm him. 
But when his disciples cried out, Master, Master, we are perishing, he awoke. Because his ears are always open to the cries of the needy, that's his compassionate heart. I'm sometimes amazed that uh, sometimes we'll be in bed at night and all of a sudden my wife's gone and I think, what's happening? Why is she taking off so quickly? Well, it's because she heard one of the kids. I don't hear the kids when I'm sleeping. My ears aren't tuned to their uh, frequency. Hers are. And so, and so are our Lord's. They're tuned precisely so that whenever you cry out in distress, whenever you are in anguish and you cry out, Master, Master, I am perishing, he hears you, he awakens, and he comes to your aid. He's a kind, a compassionate, a loving Savior. So you see it there, his compassion, in that he wakes up when his disciples call to to him. And And then this thing, I I think is important as well. When he awoke, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm, and then he speaks to them. You see, he, he could have said, why are you guys so afraid? You don't need to be so terrified. As the, the wind is blowing, and the, and, the, and the waves are crashing, and the water's raging around them, he could have but he doesn't. He sees them in their their distress. He delivers them from their distress first, and then he speaks to them and challenges them. I think that's a kindness of the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, he, he doesn't always do that. Sometimes he speaks to us while the storm is still raging around us. But if that's his methodology, you can be sure that that's because he thinks that would be the best thing for you, and that He's a compassionate God. This demonstrates that. And that if there were a better way, you can be certain he would choose it. For his disciples, he calms the storm before he speaks to them. And then his compassion is shown in another way. Notice what he did when he awoke in verse 24. He rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Now, that might seem somewhat peculiar. If you know your New Testament at all, you know that that's the word that is often used by the gospel writers to to highlight what Jesus did when he encountered demon possession. He would rebuke the evil spirit, and, and they would flee. So, why is he rebuking the wind and the waves? Well, because there's a, there's a biblical theology Uh, to wind and waves and water and storms in the Bible. And that is that behind all of these natural phenomena lurks the evil Satan. Remember how the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, he talks about who can condemn us, or if God is for us, who can be against us, or, or, or who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All these who questions but, but when he answers the who questions, he, he actually talks about what? Shall persecutions or tribulations or swords or famine or, or things like that? So that the Apostle Paul is highlighting for us that, that all opposition to the believer is ultimately the opposition of Satan, our enemy, the accuser of the brothers. And so when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, he's actually engaging in battle against 
Satan. You see in the Bible that uh, water is often the enemy of the people of God. Remember, the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt, and as they were going, Pharaoh's behind them, and in front of them, the Red Sea. Or you think here about, uh, or you think about when, when Israel was going to cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, the water again was a barrier to the plans and purposes of God for his children. But God delivers them from it. And here, we see that the storms are threatening the disciples. And not just the disciples, but they're threatening the spread of the gospel throughout the nations because if these disciples perish, who then will be the ambassadors of Christ? So there's a lot riding on this. And Christ rebukes the wind and the raging waves, and they cease. It's a reminder that Christ has come into this world to do combat with our enemy to destroy Satan. I mean, that's what the first gospel promise was in, all about in Genesis 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman would one day come to crush the head of the serpent. And the way that Jesus crushes the head of the serpent is by undergoing the power, experiencing the power of death itself. Remember, that's how Hebrews talks about it, that Christ redeemed us from the power of death by uh, or d- d- that Christ delivered us from, from him who holds the power of death. He delivered us from Satan by entering death himself so that Jesus takes upon himself the sins of his people, bears the judgment of God, and in that sacrifice, he defeats our enemy. You can think of it this way. Remember the story of Jonah. Jonah is uh, asleep in a boat and the sea's raging, and uh, the sailors, the, the pagan sailors, are doing everything they can to get the sea to, or to the ship to, to shore. And, uh, and then they realize that the problem is with Jonah. And then they say to Jonah, what shall we do to you in order that the sea may be calm for us? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. And they did, and the sea was perfectly calm. Now there, you have a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. How does Jesus make the sea calm? By being thrown into the sea of the wrath of God, experiencing the condemnation that sin deserves, so that everything is calm for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind compassion of our Lord that He knew what He would have to undergo in order to be our deliverer, and then He actually did that, that He was willing to embrace the will of His heavenly Father, though it cost Him dearly, and He did it because He loved us. The Son of God loved me. Paul says, and gave himself for me. What a kind and compassionate Savior we have. Who then is this? He's a man. He's God. He's compassionate. And then he's the deliverer. He woke, rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. Like, that's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of of how our Lord delivered his disciples from the troubles. Now, that's a picture of what He can do in your life. He can take the troubles away in this life 
or he can defer the calm until he comes again in glory. That's completely his prerogative to decide when he will remove the calm from you. But you can be absolutely certain that he will remove the calm. And you can pray that it would be soon, but you have to leave the timing for him. Remember the great Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides, uh, John G. Payton. He lived a, a very dangerous life on the first island that he went through to. He said he was often surrounded by, by uh, the natives with muskets and with spears leveled at him, hoping to kill him. And he said uh, once he was working in his garden and he saw this crowd come and they encircled him and they, they aimed their guns at him. And he said, uh, I pray to the Lord Jesus that he would deliver me either from the situation immediately so that it was no longer a danger or that he would deliver me by death. Because he understood that God could either take away the gunman so that he was safe or that the gunman would succeed, but he would still be safe because he would be in the hands of his gracious God. And so I assure you this morning, dear trembling, tempest-tossed believer, that there will be calm one day. The Lord Jesus hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forsaken you. He is able to bring the calm. And if he deems that the best thing for you would be for there to be calm, he will bring it now. And if he thinks that it would be better for you for the calm to come when he returns in glory. Well, that's when it will come. But he is the deliverer who can bring calm. And then the last point that I want to highlight, who then is this? He's man, he's God, he's compassionate, he's the deliverer, but he's also terrifying. I don't know if you picked this up, but it's obvious that the disciples in the midst of the storm were quite frightened. And you would think that when there was a calm, they would just be chillax, you know, chillax, you know, just at ease, at rest, not bothered anymore. But then look at what it says in verse 25, and they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? That is, they are more terrified after the storm is calmed than they were in the storm. And there's a reason for that. It's because they had caught a glimpse of the majesty and magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how in Revelation 1, the Apostle John has a vision of the exalted Christ, that he fell at his feet as though dead. And you might think that that's not the kind of Jesus we want. We want a, a Jesus who's like a teddy bear, cuddly, and someone we can handle, someone we can domesticate, someone tame. But that's not the kind of Jesus you want. You, you need a Jesus who terrifies you, a Jesus who astonishes you, who makes you amazed, someone that you can bow down and worship, someone that you fall on your face before because of his greatness and magnificence. You need a Jesus who is not a teddy bear, but a Jesus who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, a massive, mighty great and glorious 
deliverer. And that's exactly who he is. Who then is he? He's terrifying. He is awe-inspiring. He is magnificent in his works. So that's the answer to that question. Who then is this? Well, it's Jesus, man, God, compassionate, deliverer, terrifying. And that brings us to the second question. Where is your faith? It's really an appropriate question that Jesus asked his disciples because they should have been so frightened in the midst of the storm. A, because they were with Jesus. I mean, they, they had seen Jesus do wonderful things. They had seen him heal a centurion serpent from a distance, or, and they had seen him raise this widow's sons. So they knew, at one level, they knew who they were dealing with. They were dealing with someone who was powerful and gracious and kind and compassionate to those in need. I mean, they had heard who he was when he preached about himself in, in, the, in the synagogue in Nazareth, that, that he had been given the Spirit of the Lord to proclaim liberty and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. They should have known that if they were with Jesus, come what may, everything would be okay. If they only had trusted him, if they only had believed what they had learned of him. But it isn't just that they were with Jesus. It was also the words of Jesus. Because remember what he said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, let us try to go across to the other side of the lake, or let's give it our best shot and see if we're successful. He says, no, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And that should have been enough for them to be confident that whatever happened, however violent the storm, they would actually reach the goal at the end. You see, that's the word that we need to hear this morning. Where is our faith? Our faith needs to be solely based on who Jesus is and on what Jesus says. That's why it's so important for us to be students of the Word, because it's in the Scriptures that we come face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important to sit under the ministry of the Word, because it's in the preaching that the Lord Jesus Christ has held before you so that you can see Him, so that you can know Him, so that knowing Him, you can trust Him, you can put your complete repose in Him, knowing that He will take you from where you are and bring you to everlasting glory. You don't need to worry about a thing. Nothing will derail his purposes. Nothing will change his plans for you. He is determined to bless you, and nothing will get into his way. And you just need to trust him. Doesn't mean you need to understand his ways or to know precisely what he's doing. Doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Usually it's going to be hard. There's always the desert before the promised land that we have to travel through. But he is worthy of your trust and confidence. He has shown himself to be that. So that we need to just rest in him and wait upon him and be calm in him. And may God give us the grace.
to do so so that we might be happy in all of our trials and tribulations and might praise the God of our salvation. Let us pray. O gracious God, merciful, loving, tender-hearted Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless your word to our hearts. You know the difficulties and struggles of our life. You know the, the things that bother us and weigh us down. You know everyone here, and you know how they've received your word. And we pray that you would give us hearts that are open and good hearts that receive your word and that it would give us calm and confidence and that we would trust in you. We pray that you would bless our dear brothers and sisters who are going through particularly difficult trials and deep waters and that you would uh, show them yourself And show them the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his magnificent tenderness for those who are troubled. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.